Well, there was a um, sale at the Museum of Fine Arts, because it's all calendars, and the calendars are worth less than they were in January. Sorry? Is it the Blake calendar? It is. So here, I got each of you. Oh my god. Oh my goodness, what? Thank you. Oh my goodness, wow. These look really good also. Well, that's why I was hoping uh, Tafar was going to be here, but I'm sure he'll be here at least one of the days next week. Oh, do you have one? Oh, okay, here. Thank you. What's your What's your 2018 calendar? I just like it's like hummingbirds. Oh, okay. And it's just like aesthetic photography of birds, and like I just keep turning the pages because I don't have a new one, so now I do. Yay! Okay, All right. I thought it'd be funny. You get me a, a math calendar. It was good, but it doesn't have any room for you to put anything. It just has problems in the data. <laughs> <laughs> and and you can't even calculate the problems. You can, well, it, you can with all the answers of the day, so it's no Oh, oh I see. Oh, so it's like interesting numbers. Yeah. So the answers are like um, the 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 second lowest prime under 20 because it's the 17th or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. really? So the answer is the number of the day? Yeah, well, once you the know day. all the answers, then it's like... Well, yeah, everyone knows what tomorrow is, right? The I, no, that's not until... No, the... Friday. Yeah. Wait, no. tomorrow is Pi Day. Yes, yeah, well, tomorrow's Pi Day. Pi day. And um, Friday is the odds. Friday, it's three fourteen. But none of the days. Oh, I thought the the edible pie. No, it's less excited. People celebrate by eating edible pie. pie. Yeah, they celebrate most things by eating pie. (laughs) Presidents Day, like cherry pie, Thanksgiving pumpkin pie. But the the really good pie day was three fourteen fifteen, March March fourteenth, two thousand fifteen. Oh yeah. Actually, uh-huh. that still doesn't exactly work because, I mean, even if it's 3.1415, like, if you're ending there, you should be rounding up to Yeah, okay, all right, yeah. But there was a time when it was 9.26. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yes, yeah, um, I remember 9.26. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then the seconds after that, what is 9.26, 3.5. So nine twenty six fifty, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but <laughs> oh well. But I was in France on Pi Day in two thousand fifteen, which meant that it wasn't three one five, but it was. Um, I mean, it wasn't three one four; it was one four three. So it was heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, that's why you shouldn't continue with French. Yeah, so. clearly. <laughs> um, okay, I should just say that for um, Monday, you should the, you, you guys have the Xerox of all the poems that are in Lyrical Ballads, and also um, Halmy, who's the editor of, um, of these volumes, uh, tells you what's in Lyrical Ballads. So you should have read basically all the poems from these volumes that are in Lyrical Ballads for Monday as well as the preface to Lyrical Ballads, which is about 30 pages long, and which is in um, the Norton Wordsworth. So as I say, that's one of the great um, critical statements. The preface is the 1800? The 1802. Um, it's with, the way he puts it is the uh, preface with the 1802 editions incorporated. 
so oh, I see. so it's um, the preface is just longer in eighteen o two. So uh, you should read that. Um, that should uh, all by Monday. Um, still nothing compared to a page of Blake as far as the work goes. Um, all right, so we were looking at We Are Seven, and then um, I think this is a, a place... We're going to be reading more of Coleridge's supernatural poems, but the one that um, you've really read that matters is The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. There's also the Foster Mother's Tale, uh, which, which you can take or leave. It's fine. The, it's, that's excised from a play. Coleridge uh, tried to be a playwright. He's not a very good playwright. Uh, he was very interested in the German plays of the time by people like Schiller and Goethe. And it is believed, although not certain, that, there's, that he did a translation of Goethe's Faust, which, that is, there is a translation which is believed, although it's not certain, to be his translation. And so the translation exists. People aren't sure it's his. But he matters, he really matters as a poet and as a critic. And we're not going to be reading much of his criticism, but we will be reading, beside the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, a couple of other of his supernatural poems, in particular Christabel. Then there's Kublai Khan, which it's not quite clear what you would call it. It's, um, it's a dream poem. And then there are a couple of more naturalistic poems like Dejection and Ode and Frost at Midnight. So we'll be reading all of those. But just before we get back to We Are Seven, one, so as you'll see what Wordsworth said, this is one of the things we were talking about on Monday, that Coleridge, that he and Coleridge decided to split the labor of writing natural ballads and supernatural ballads. And Wordsworth, um, when you read Michael, which you should have done by Monday at any rate, you'll see that there are moments, and we saw this in Goody Blake and Harry Gill as well, where it looks like supernatural things are happening, but they're not. And part of what Wordsworth is doing is giving you a sense that there are things that can be spooky, that there can be psychosomatic kinds of reactions to guilt. For example, what you have in Harry Gill that look like the punishment of supernatural agents, but aren't. Then you have a poem like The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which clearly is, does tell a supernatural story. Clearly might be slightly strong, because it's the ancient mariner's story, and we are ultimately getting it from the view of the wedding guests, so maybe the ancient mariner is crazy. But that just doesn't seem a useful reading of the poem or any more useful than saying the poem itself exists. That is, someone is producing a supernatural story. And if you want to say it's the Ancient Mariner rather than Coleridge, or if you want to say that it's Coleridge rather than the Ancient Mariner, it really doesn't matter. What matters is the story, and what's interesting is the story. And so the story, the interesting story, is a supernatural story. In Yeah? But also, he, he, you can read it as he hypnotizes this the wedding hymn. Like, there's some supernatural quality to his irresistible... Yeah. But that could possibly... I mean, I think that's right, and I think, though, that it's important to see that that can... You know, it's he holds him with his glittering eye, that that 
hypnotic response or that that compelling and charismatic and and captivating um, presence of the mariner might overlap in some ways with uh, with Goody Blake. That is, that here is a figure who is rendered. There's a word in. There's a word you know, but it's, I'm about to use it in a different way from the way you know it. A word in existentialist psychoanalysis, which is psychoanalysis uh, based on or um, uh, absorbing and assimilating ideas of French existentialism. Uh, the psychoanalyst who did this is a man named Ludwig Binswanger, and he has a concept that he calls extravagance. So that's the word that you know, extravagance. But what he means by it is when you get to a place from which you can't rescue yourself. So the literal meaning, the root meaning, the etymological meaning of extravagance is to wander, that is to like to be a vagrant, to, to in Latin, vagere or, or vagere, to wander beyond where you can be saved by yourself. So extra means out, outside of, beyond. And so extravagance is a wandering beyond a place where it's possible to get back to safety. And so it's a psychoanalytic term and one that might apply to someone like Harry Gill, that is someone who feels cursed by Goody Blake and can never get back to himself. And it's not that things are supernatural, it's that the experience that he has been part of and which is which has put brought him to where he is is one that has the same kind of effect that a supernatural curse might have and the idea then would be something like the supernatural is as as it's often claimed to be an externalization of ways in which the mind is punishing itself, dealing with with the agents, the agencies that it thinks that it's wronged, or or the sometimes the agencies that that it thinks that it hasn't wronged. The um, yeah, I was going to talk a little bit about. Well, the demons in his dark materials are versions of that. That is, if you've read his dark materials, the demons of the characters on on the in the parallel earth, parallel world, Lyra and the characters in that world discover that that we in our world also have demons, only they're so internalized that we don't know that we have them whereas Lyra and Lord Azrael and so on do know. So the question is, is, you could either say, and I think that this is the connection between Wordsworth and Coleridge, that Coleridge is making external what is, in, what is an internal series of feelings, of responses, of reactions, of judgments, of emotional turmoil inside the psyche, or you could say that Wordsworth internalizes what in supernatural stories is outside of the psyche. So which is truer? Probably that supernatural things are externalized aspects of the interior, 
But in a way, it doesn't matter so much because in, in, in lyrical ballads, what you get are the poems. And the poems are compelling pictures of, in one way or another, ordinary people who are in extravagant situations. So that in the thorn, there is a woman whose um, guilt and horror over the death of her child is manifests itself as, as her, she herself becoming um, a quasi-supernatural entity. If you think about Goody Blake and Harry Gill, along with The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, what is it that those two poems have in common? So The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge on the one hand is a, as a frankly supernatural poem within lyrical ballads, a supernatural ballad, and Goody Blake and Harry Gill, which is looks like it might be supernatural but really isn't. But what do they have in common thematically, let's say? Yeah. Just that you should take pity on the poor or the less, the weaker or yeah. the strong shouldn't abuse the weak. Yeah, the strong shouldn't use shouldn't abuse the weak. And how is the ancient mariner like Harry Gill? Yeah, Harry Gill does, and what does the Ancient Mariner do? No, yes, obviously. So what's the Harry Gill, uh, what corresponds in Harry Gill? He doesn't let old ladies feel tired keep herself Right. So in both cases, what you have is someone with power exercising that power somewhat arbitrarily. In the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, it's completely arbitrarily. That is, he kills the albatross without having any reason to do so. In Goody Blake and Harry Gill, there's at least a sense that um, this is his property and what is she doing taking um, these twigs and, and, and these bits of wood away from him. But in both cases, what you have is someone does something on the spur of the moment, something that doesn't cost him very much to do, and then it turns out to cost him everything because he's done it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like Edgar Allan Poe's stories, mm -hmm. where it's like, first of all, there's kind of a man that's attacking a woman, and it, yeah, it's happening kind of in the spur of the moment, and then there's this huge period of like regretting it, and there's kind of these super these things that kind of have a supernatural and a natural explanation, yeah, and like. It's kind of like the whole world represents the psyche and how nice. you're yeah. haunting, how the whole world is haunting you, but you yeah. really you're haunting yourself. Yeah, so if you think of something like the Telltale Heart, yeah. which I think you may be thinking of, um, that it's clearly nothing supernatural is actually occurring in the story. Does everyone know the story? So clearly nothing supernatural is actually occurring in the story, but the guilt that the narrator feels and the madness. The guilt is driving him to madness and the madness is intensifying the guilt and so he's hearing this heartbeat and um, what's caused him to do this is just that he doesn't look like the look of the guy's eye. So there is this tremendous psychic overreaction which then snowballs and it's so he does something and that snowballs also. So what, both of them are poems about guilt and poems about how guilt 
renders you subject to some sort of sense of deserving supernatural punishment, that supernatural punishment is something that you deserve. And the ancient mariner certainly feels that way. And he gets it. Penance much hath done, and penance more shall do. And Harry Gill does it to himself. So it's worth doing that exercise of seeing what is it that made Coleridge and Wordsworth do the book together when Coleridge is doing the supernatural poems and Wordsworth is doing the natural ones, is that they are essentially talking about a certain kind of psychology, of human psychology, which is the psychology of intensity and fixation. And maybe that is ultimately what makes it ballad-like, is that sense of fixation. If you think of the ballads that we looked at on Monday, there is that idea, you know, that Lord Randall has killed his father, and that's the thing that is being focused on, and we're and and that we're that we're closing in on in that poem. In uh, the Trois Corbies, it's the body behind the style. In all those cases, in all the cases of, of ballads, there's something which is the center or the focus. And in the lyrical ballads, the idea is something like that in real life, that sort of thing can happen. That there are people who are obsessed. That there is the idea of obsession. That where obsession comes from, it's easy to say where obsession comes from if supernatural things are going on. How are you not going to be obsessed by supernatural things if there are ghosts talking to you or birds talking to you every night? Of course you're going to become obsessed with that. But where it becomes psychological obsession, in a poem like The Thorn, for example, where it becomes psychological obsession, is where you are learning something or thinking through a sort of overlap between psychology and poetry. That is, that poetry is this kind of intense focus on an intense psychological state whose intensity can render it obsessive. Obviously not all poetry, but this kind of poetry, what they're calling lyrical balance. So let's look at uh, We Are Seven. Um, finish looking at it? I'm looking at it just because we started it on Monday. And then there are a couple of other uh, poems to look at today. So We Are Seven is, remember it has that intro by Coleridge and then um, the story itself, so a little anecdote. Um, why don't we go counterclockwise? So Olivia, why don't you start with, I met a little cottage girl. Um, I met a little cottage girl. She was eight years old, she said. Her hair was thick with many curls clustered around her head. Yeah, do two stanzas. She had a rustic woodland air. She was wildly clad. Her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad. Okay, so here is a speaker, um, and he meets this girl who is um, a focus. And 
there's a difference between the kind of person maybe that the speaker is and the kind of person he's focusing on, or maybe not. But or maybe it's the kind of difference that you have in real life, that we are all of us longitudinal beings, but when we meet someone, they're always um, someone who's there in the present, not someone who's longitudinal the way we are. Um, Ariel, pick up, pick up from there. Sisters and brothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many, seven in all, she said, and wondering looked at me. So why, why is he asking her that question? Well, let's just say it's, it's ballad-like in, in that maybe it, there is no motivation, but if you had to give it, a, and a lot of lyrical ballads is about doing things without motivation. That's something that uh, maybe we'll see in a few minutes in She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. But if you had to give it a motivation, it's he wants to talk to her. Um, he's asking her, a question. There she is, and and you want. There's not. Don't make it creepy. In other words, this isn't a dirty old man who's saying, "Ooh, well, she's eight. but it's rather she is interesting. It's her. Her. He loves talking to this this young person, and so he has a topic of conversation. How many are you? So go on. And where are they? I pray you tell. She answered, Seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell, and two are gone to see. Okay, so now we're counting. Total of seven. We're seven. There's me, is one. Two at Conway, that's three. And two are gone to see, that's five. Go on, Mick. Two of us in the churchyard lot, my sister and my brother, and in the churchyard cottage, I dwell near them with my mother. So, yeah, so that, that's seven. That gives you all seven. So the narrator replies. You say that two at Conway dwell, and two are gone to see. Maybe there are seven. I pray you tell us who how this may be. Okay, so what we're getting here is a little arithmetic lesson. <laughs> Do you all remember this from, like, third grade? When your teachers get frustrated with you because you're actually not counting when you're supposed to be doing addition or subtraction? I remember my second grade teacher really getting pissed at me because I was trying to use negative numbers. And she said, look, if you have three pencils and I take five away, how many do you have? And the answer was, obviously, I have none. But I actually said to her, that means I owe you three. And she was so unhappy. So, but at any rate, that's how you first learn arithmetic. If you only have three pencils, how can she take five away? Uh, well, because I owed her a couple. So that, but you weren't supposed to think of that. that okay. In second grade, that was Mrs. Komisky, who was okay. really upset because they told her that negative numbers were for middle school. Interesting. It turned out, but that's what they told her. She actually said at one point, "We're not supposed to be talking about that yet." <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. Sorry. Negative numbers from Cyberchase that PBS kids show. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. But here is just so you have three and I give you two, and how many do you have now? Oh, I have five. So what's three and two? Oh, that's easy. So here it's okay. So there's you and two at Conway and two at C. So how many is that? So you, so this is what Lewis Carroll thought was so funny. 
was that you have this adult trying to explain arithmetic to a little child. And um, he skips, who's he skipping? It's your dead children. Yeah, so, um, and remember, that's what Coleridge, it's interesting now to think of Coleridge adding that original stanza because he's kind of explaining what it is that the narrator, he's adding a stanza for the narrator to ask what should it know of death. And by asking that question, it's essentially you can feel maybe that the narrator doesn't want to remind, doesn't want to dwell on the death of the other siblings. Which is not uncommon, by the way. Um, if there's seven children, the two of them would die before adolescence in 1798. That was kind of standard. There were, there were if you were lucky, 80% of children would grow to adulthood, and that's if you were lucky. So, but he doesn't want to dwell on that. And so you say the two at Conway dwell and two are gone to sea, yet yeah, you are seven, I pray you tell sweet maid how this may be. So how can it be, Max? Then did the little maid reply, seven boys and girls are we, two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. To which the narrator helpfully replies, you run about, my little maid, your limbs they are alive. If two are in the churchyard laid, then ye are only five. So, no. <laughs> you think he's missing a point there? That they're alive in spirit. Yeah. <laughs> or that she's loyal to them. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's, it, you're right. They're, they're not alive in spirit. You don't have the sense that, that they are... That they have that 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 she feels. I don't know. I don't think you have a sense of their spirits. I think it's this. What's what's. So some people obviously Lewis Carroll thought this poem was ridiculous, and um, some people uh, do think it goes on for um, to to give you an obtuse narrator. But it really is worth asking what the narrator is obtuse about. Obviously he is not getting that the girl counts her dead brother and sister as among them, as part of the we. But on the other hand, he is getting that. He just thinks she shouldn't be. It's not like he's unable to figure out that she means those other t that they are part of the seven. She, he does. Um, but for him... He can't figure out why or how they would be part of the seven. And so the question is, well, how are they part of the seven? What does, why is that? If you don't think of them as alive in spirit, if, because they don't seem to be, because they do lie in the churchyard, because they really are not there as living beings. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't going to ask you. Yeah. I just, the inclusion of the, the first stanza from Coleridge, mm -hmm. uh, to me, it puts the whole thing in perspective of, of teaching about death as opposed to teaching about numbers. Mm -hmm. So what was maybe a question of numbers is, is now a question of can he teach her what death really means? And is that, is that worth doing? Mm -hmm. Because she, she seems to be great at counting. She's, She's counted seven. Yeah. 
but she he wants her to understand nice. about death, but I don't know if we want her to understand that about death. Yeah. Um so one question, I guess what I'm kind of urging is to is that this poem is really there there's something strangely mysterious about this poem. And when I say strangely mysterious, it's because I think it's strange that this poem should be mysterious. That the speaker should be such a noob as he is and should just be as silly as he is. And yet, even with a speaker like that, you know, in some ways he's like the wedding guest. He is someone who's clueless about depth and is involved in conversation. He's the one insisting on the conversation, not unlike the wedding guest who's trying to get away in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. He's the one insisting on the conversation. But nevertheless, there's something like the wedding guest in his almost invincible naivete about what's going on. And his insistence on counting to five. And yet, it somehow really works in this poem. That it makes the poem that doesn't have, it does, the poem doesn't have moral. It's not that the poem will end with him saying, and then a sadder and a wiser man I rose the morrow morn, which is how the run of the ancient mariner ends. Um, the wedding guest rises sadder, sadder and wiser the next day. For him, it's just like pointless. He just couldn't make his point to this little girl. And yet, somehow we've learned something from the poem. Uh, why'd you pick it up from there, Ryan? Your graves are green, they may be seen, the little man replied. Full steps are more of my mother's work, and they are side by side. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit. I sit and sing to them. So that's why they exist for her. Not that they're alive in spirit, but that they're... Um, <coughs> What? Does she think they can hear them singing? Maybe? What do you guys think? I mean, what I was thinking from earlier was, was more that her points to the narrator and I don't know if they're arguing past the other, or even if it comes, he's really arguing, but he's saying that you can't count them as siblings because they don't contribute any, like, anything to the world anymore, I guess. Mm -hmm. But she's saying they still exist, or, like, it's, it's that their existence is still relevant, even to her, even if it's not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. That, that, yeah, that it's not that they're, that they exist in some objective way, but it's that she's still loyal to them, that they still matter to her. And there's an odd philosophical, referential paradox in that, that they don't exist, yet there is something that they do, even though they don't exist, which is they matter. 
So he's insisting that they don't exist. And she's insisting that they exist not even... They do exist for her, but it's that they are part of the seven, that they're part of a we, that they're that when she uses the pronoun we, it includes them. And so the pronoun we is legitimate, and including them is part of what that we extends to, even though they don't exist. So your word that they're still relevant, that's, I think that's, that's a good way of putting it. Um, pick up from there, Nicole. Sorry, I have what stanza is that? I, like, scrolled up to read Line something 40. earlier. Sorry? Line 45. And often after sunset? And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little... <laughs> sorry. I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. The first that died was little Jane, in bed she moaning lay, till God released her of her pain, and then she went away. So, one of them is named Jane. Notice they are the ones who are named the dead ones. So she's in bed moaning and then God takes her away and then she went away. She's releasing her pain and then she went away. So in the churchyard she was laid and all the summer dry. Together round her grave we played, my brother John and I. So she and John are with Jane and John is then alive then, definitely part of the we. John is alive, then, but, and when the ground was white with snow, and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go, and he lies by her side. So, it's not that two of them are dead, pure and simple. It's that there's this transitional period, moment, when John, who is dead, was alive, even though Jane was dead. And so, first Jane is alive but moaning in bed, then she dies, then John, who is now lying beside her and who is dead, was with the little girl and alive with her while Jane was dead. And that is, again, a way of her seeing maybe the family project or something is yes, some have to go to Conway and some have to go beyond the sea and some have to die. Um, but that's what family members have to do. They have to go various places, but there's still the familial cohesion or grouping. And I think that John, the fact that John, who's now dead, was, was first playing with the little girl around Jane's grave, that's a way of bringing it all into a single orbit, into a single, well, into a single we. So the narrator, does he get it? Um, Olivia? Um, how many are you then, said I, if two are in heaven? If they two are in heaven. If they two are in heaven. The little maiden did reply, O oh, master, we are seven. They are dead, those two are dead. <laughs> Their spirits are in heaven. Was throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will, and said, Nay, we are seven. Yeah, so, twas throwing words away. He gets really frustrated. Just completely pointless talking to her. She just doesn't get it. 
And, of course, the point is he doesn't get it. And the poem gets it. It's not that Wordsworth... You can't, you can't confuse this speaker with Wordsworth. It's not a story about, boy, this girl, she's such a dunce. Here, I'm going to write a poem about what a dunce she is. It's about how the speaker of the poem is a dunce. And that despite himself, it's, um, he conveys to us the, I don't know, the, the strength of simplicity in the girl, that, that her simplicity is far stronger without, and more subtle, that somehow what you get here in her is a subtle simplicity that he's the one who's simple-minded and she's the one who's subtle. Yeah, Meg. My thought is just like the, the way that I'm looking at thing, especially with these last two stanzas, is that she's not really differentiating the, the pair in heaven from the pair in how they're there to see, right? Like, they're just not present. The same way she can't, or they can't hear her singing when she's sitting under the tree at their graves. Her mm-hmm. siblings... At the sea, can't hear the same right. she's sitting under the tree. At, like, it, you know, it's not different for her. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that she does use I when she says, I take my little porringer there and I sit and sing to them. Um, but for her, the first person pronoun that's, that's important is we, more important than the pronoun I. And for the speaker of the poem, he's very much an I. It's not, it's, I met this girl, and I said to her, and she said, we are seven. And I said, but no, how many of you are there really if two are um, at Conway or two beyond the sea? Then what does that come to? And she says, yeah, it comes to that we are seven. And then when she uses, when she uses the word I, it's part of the we. And it's not I and the others who make up the we. It's, there is a we, and then if I have to talk about a part of that we, which is my brother John, or Jane, or myself, I will, but what's more important is the we that it's a part of. And in a way, that's what gives it maybe the tone of a ballad, which is that, that anonymity that you get in ballads, that the whole idea of an anonymous world, the world of a ballad, a timeless world, a world which isn't historical, doesn't just just um, develop and change the way the historical world does, maybe that's the voice that you're getting in her. And I think that it's a... It's a really... It's a really subtle poem without that subtlety being at all easy to tease out. It's hard to, in a way it's really hard to imagine what kind of thought you would have to be capable of doing to write this poem. Not to be the speaker, but to actually write the poem. That the contrast between the speaker and the girl is is a perfect one. And what it brings out is 
what's a little bit eerie or a little bit a little bit well I don't know if there's a better word for it than than ballad like about the girl I mean she's just a human being she's she's normal and natural in every way but she's also spooky yeah um, yeah it's just spooky hearing a little girl say that people who are dead are there yeah and, you know, that's so, yeah. here it's, it's not that they really are there, Yeah. which is the naturalistic part of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Nice. It, it must be unsettling for an adult to hear a child speak of the dead. Yeah. Which yeah. is where the supernatural. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's, ex- that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, Olivia. Like, I think part of where it gets like, weirdly spooky for me <laughs> is that like these dead children... Because there's, like, so much emphasis on her routine and how, like, Jane and John specifically are yeah. part of her daily routine. Yes, yeah. And so the dead children are, like, more present in her life than those siblings who are unnamed, who get mentioned once at the very beginning, who, like, went away to wherever. Right, right. And so that, like... Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's that they're... What you were saying, Meg, about how they can't hear her either, um, they can't hear her and she can't be near them. But as far as the dead children, yeah, she hangs out with them every day. And so that's right, they're closer than those who are, who are in Conway or who are gone to sea. And yet those four also belong to the we. And if they do, then certainly these two children, John and Jane, who are right there, would have to belong to it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That's great. Um, let's quickly look at Simon Lee, because here's another uh, poem which tells a story. And the story is one in which, which he reflects upon. So we'll, we'll do it quickly. Do you guys remember it? Do you remember the story? The story of Simon Lee, the old huntsman with an incident in which he was concerned. So, so again, you have an old man and a little bit the way Harry Gill has gotten old, and, um, and we're told there's going to be a story. So in the sweet shire of Cardigan, not far from pleasant Ivor Hall, an old man dwells, a little man. I've heard he once was tall. Of years he has upon his back, no doubt, a burden weighty. He says he is threescore and ten, but others say he's eighty. So um, kind of a comic rhyme. He says he's 70, others say he's 80. A long blue livery coat has he that's fair behind and fair before, yet meet him where you will, you see, at once, that he is poor. Full five and twenty years he lived a running huntsman merry, and though he has but one eye left, his cheek is like a cherry. No man like him, the horn could sound, no man and no man was so full of glee. To say the least, four counties round had heard of Simon Lee, his master's dead, and no one now dwells in the hall of Ivor. Men, dog, and horses all are dead. He is the sole survivor. Again, a slightly comic rhyme. I don't know if you hear if you hear that that's slightly comic, but um, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded like a Dr. Seuss poem. Right. Then. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's why he's naming it the Hall of Ivor. His hunting feats have him bereft of his right eye, as you may see. 
And then what limbs those feet have left to poor old Simon Lee. He has no son, he has no child. His wife, an aged woman, lives with him near the waterfall upon the village common. And he is lean and he is sick. His little body's half awry. His ankles, they are swollen and thick. His legs are thin and dry. When he was young, he little knew of husbandry or tillage. And now he's forced to work, though weak, the weakest in the village. Again, past, he all the country could outrun, could leave both man and horse behind. And often, ere the race was done, he reeled and was stone blind. And still, so he was, he was already drunk because he'd run so fast that he was drinking while other people were still running. And still there's something in the world in which his heart rejoices, for when the chiming hounds are out, he dearly loves their voices. Old Ruth, that is his wife, works out of doors with him and does what Simon cannot do, for she, not over stout of limb, is stouter of the two. And though you with your utmost skill from labor could not wean them, alas, tis very little all which they can do between them. So they're old and they still have to work. Beside their moss-grown hut of clay, not twenty paces from the door, a scrap of land they have, but they are poorest of the poor. This scrap of land he from the heath enclosed when he was stronger, but what avails the land to them, which they can till no longer. So again and again, the insistence on how old they are, how um, they are unable to do what they were once able to do so easily. Few months of life he has in store, as he to you will tell, for still the more he works, the more his poor old ankles swell. And then this amazing moment, my gentle reader, I perceive how patiently you've waited, and I'm afraid that you expect some tale will be related. So you're reading these lyrical ballads and this huge setup about old Simon Lee and how he used to be young and now he's old and um, I've gone on about this for 70 lines, so I'm sure you want to know why. O oh, reader, had you in your mind such stores a silent thought can bring? O oh, gentle reader, you would find a tale in everything. So that would be tale enough. My tale could be over, but I'll tell you a little bit more. What more I have to say is short. I hope you'll kindly take it. It is no tale, but should you think, perhaps a tale you'll make it. So such stores a silent thought can bring. If you bring it to your thought, if you think, perhaps a tale you'll make it. Here's the story. One summer day I chanced to see this old man doing all he could about the root of an old tree, a stump of rotten wood. The mattock tottered in his hand, so vain was his endeavor that at the root of the old tree he might have worked forever. You're overtasked, good Simon Lee. Give me your tool, to him, I said. And at the word right gladly he received my proffered aid. So I offered him help, and he was very glad to have it. I struck, and with a single blow the tangled root I severed. So he's a hero, right? With a single blow, he's like a hero out of an Arthurian romance. Um, he struck, and with a single blow, he knocked the dragon out. I struck, what were you going to say? Okay. I struck, and with a single blow, the tangled root I severed. 
at which the poor old man so long and vainly had endeavored. The tears into his eyes were brought, and thanks and praises seemed to run so fast out of his heart, I thought they never would have done. He's just so grateful. I've heard of hearts unkind, kind deeds with coldness still returning. Alas, the gratitude of men has oftener left me mourning. So why does this leave him mourning? What is the tale here? Why is this a sad story? Why isn't he boasting about how happy he made for old Simon Lane? Well, so wouldn't the gratitude be a good thing then? Yeah, but why does that leave him mourning? Yeah. I think, like, sometimes if someone's extra grateful to you, it makes you feel sad. Like, I think, I, I think that's a normal thing to feel a little sad if someone's, like, extra grateful to you. How come? I felt, I think I felt it before, like... Yeah, but, so analyze it. Why do you think you felt that way? It, like creates almost a kind of guilt because like now you feel almost like you're in their debt for being so grateful to you for doing nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if that makes no, sense. No, that totally makes sense. I love what you just said. That totally makes sense. That their gratitude is um, really puts you on the spot. It's not it's like you didn't mean for this to be a big deal and suddenly it's become a big deal between you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't quite explain the mourning part, but I think that that's a whole lot of it, yeah. I mean, mourning is a strong word, and Wordsworth is doing, Wordsworth is an extraordinarily subtle poet. He's probably, he's generally regarded, he's not my favorite of the romantic poets, but he should be, how's that? Shelley. Um, but he is um, his his lightness of touch is he, he he's extraordinarily skillful poetically. He's he's um, his management of poetic effect is and subtlety in the management of poetic effect is um, incredible. And it's worth, therefore, I mean, we saw that in Ivor and Survivor, just the, that, that that is supposed to sound, it's supposed to disarm you. It is supposed to sound a little Dr. Susie. It is supposed to be a little bit funny. He knows that it's going to have that effect. Returning and mourning are not really perfect rhymes. And Wordsworth is using and will use an imperfect rhyme to make you notice it. That is, that 
the you really notice the word mourning because it doesn't just fall into place the way something like the word survivor falls into place. The whole survivor, he was the sole survivor. That just falls into place and you don't, it doesn't emphasize, it's like it's not italicizing the word survivor. But to rhyme returning with mourning the way he does at the end of Simon Lee really does have the effect of making you notice that last word, that word mourning. Especially also because it's like the last, it's the last the last rhyme and it doesn't rhyme. Yeah, and it doesn't quite rhyme. So he really wants you to, to pay attention to that word. So what is it that he's in mourning for? Or why is he unhappy with what's happened? So I agree, It's I, I, I think that's a lot of what you were saying, Nicole, um, about it's turning it into a big thing. Partly saying that he wished he did it differently, that he made a mistake doing what he did. At least I think that's part of the anecdote here, part of the story, that he should have, he should have behaved differently. What should he have done? What, what regret does he have in the way he handled the situation? Yeah, yeah, I think that's clear. That if he had made it, if it had taken him a little while, if it had taken him four or five blows, there's something almost boastful about, or a potential boast in, I did it with one blow. If he had made it a little bit harder, then there would have been more of a continuity between what Simon Lee was trying to do and what he's trying to do. What you get here is a radical discontinuity. Simon Lee is working, 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 getting nowhere, and he comes in and boom, it's done in a single blow. Whereas if, you know, just think of the next time you open a jar for an older person. Think about, um, you know, we're all attracted, all us youth love to just open the jar just like that, right? And we feel kind of superior when we do it. Have you not had that experience? I can never get anything open. Yeah, neither can I. But wouldn't you like to? Yes. Just like, this damn jar. Here, give it to me. There you go. That's the, that's the everyday life version of this. But if there'd be more continuity, he, he would be inviting Simon Lee into a human community better if the labor were more, more of the same, of, 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 of more equivalent, if there was more equivalence in the kind of work that it took. But what he's showing, what he's bringing out, and then what the gratitude brings out is just the complete non-equality, non-equivalence between the situations that they're in that Simon Lee can't do this, simply can't do it. He's unfitted for this world that the narrator is completely fitted for. And that is what he's brought home to Simon Lee. And the gratitude is partly, maybe even, if Simon Lee had been angry, if he'd been, um, if he'd said, thanks, I suppose, or don't you feel good about yourself, that would have been okay. 
but it's almost as though the 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 gap between them is so absolute and so total that there isn't even the flicker of a thought in Simon Lee's head that this makes the gap between them look bigger than it is, which is generally what people will think. Like, okay, he did it very quickly, I couldn't do it at all, but I could have done it if I worked a little bit harder. If it had been something like, if he'd been less grateful, then it would have, would have been less of a big deal. But the gratitude is what, as you say, what makes it such a big deal. And the fact that it's such a big deal just shows how far Simon Lee is from what he once was, even in his own mind. Maybe so far that he does, doesn't even recognize how far he is from what he once was, but how far he is from, from what he once was. Meg? With that, with that, just the comment of whether he might not even recognize, it's just, I think that's an option. I, based on the reaction of the speaker, the narrator, it seems like maybe that's more where he's at, but another possibility is just that he's so much okay with the fact, like he's, some, he's not in denial of the fact that he's an old member of Mm -hmm. Like he's, he knows when he needs help, he was grateful for the help instead of having that like pride of like I was once the fastest and the strongest and the best. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that that's exactly what this is saying, but it's it would I think someone in that position would react to maybe simply being grateful and accepting the help without thinking. Wait, you think someone in that someone who yeah. was completely comfortable with their own age, weakness, yeah. whatever would react? I think in a similar way. I know that I can't do this, and that's okay, and I appreciate yeah. that you can. Yeah. So, you're right. And if, and, but I think what you're saying something is, is something really interesting about what it would mean to be really comfortable in that situation, which is that you would see it as um, one of the things that comes with life and it would still be continuous with the same life that the narrator is reading. Different part of that life, different time of that life, and so on. But if it were everyday gratitude, it would be, you know, thank you, young man. Um, if it were thank you, young man kind of gratitude, even really many thanks, young man, I couldn't have done it without you. That would put them, that would give them a kind of parody. That is the parody of having their, their roles in the stage of life or in the play of life. But it's as though Simon Lee is pathetic in his gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, Max. Well, getting hung up over um, kind deeds with coldness still returning. Mm -hmm. I don't know what those are. You mean who does that? Yeah. Who does that sort of thing? What, what, yeah, or even what it is. Have you never let anyone cut you off um, when they're trying to get in from a side street uh, in a Boston um, traffic jam? Yeah, I've never driven in Boston. Oh. In, in Nyack. There's no traffic jams in Nyack. Or maybe there are. Well, it's, I mean, stories about people being cold um, thanks to someone's kindness. There are lots of stories like that, right? 
it's you can't think of one King Lear. So King Lear is very kind to his daughters, and they return his kindness with um, coldness and, and meanness. Oh, I see. And he's returning, and Simon Lee is no. returning his kind, the narrator's kindness with coldness. No, no, no. What he says. So here, here would be here would be an ordinary ballad, let's say. Um, you know, it, this this could be Lord Randall. That it's something like um, the someone does something kind, expecting that they will get um, a gratitude that will bond them with the person they did something kind to, mm-hmm. and. Then you t- then there are many stories about I was so nice to X, but when I was in trouble, X gave me the cold shoulder. No, and, yeah, I, I see. I see. No, my mistake was in the grammar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because it's, it's contrasted um, with, with gratitude, right? Um, as being the return. So he's saying that oh, like I've heard of hearts and kind kind deeds with coldness still returning. But what really makes him mourn is the gratitude. Is are men who are grateful? Yeah. Well, with someone like Simon Lee, with yeah. his with his over the top gratitude, that if in fact what he's saying is if Simon Lee had understated his gratitude, if he'd said something like, "Yeah, I was about to do that, but fine, thanks," the narrator is saying. I would have the the counterpoem to this, which would have been made the same point, is that if Simon Lee had not shown me gratitude, I would have felt good about myself. Yeah, I was gonna say it. It's like you feel like, oh, I'm such a good person, and like he didn't do any. Like he, like some people are so mean. Like I would never do that or something like that, right? Yeah, but it might even be more, which is I let him have his dignity. That is, <laughs> he didn't show me very great gratitude and I'm proud of that fact because I now realize that I did something that allowed him to keep his dignity and um, of course he can't say, he can't thank me for allowing him to keep his dignity because he'd lose his dignity if he did Um, and I feel good that I did something where he can't thank me it's like an anonymous donation it's like you do an anonymous donation and you feel good about that very fact, even though the person that you did the donation to um, may treat you coldly because they have no idea that you did that. That may make you feel even prouder if you did an anonymous donation to someone who needed it but was mean to you and uh, partly because they didn't know you'd done it. You might not regret it. You might be even happier that you did it. Yeah. But instead, he, he robbed the dignity in two ways. Right. He, he fell the tree with one blow. And he left the old man apologize, or give his gratitude. Right. Yeah. In, in excess. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so that's a ballad. That's telling a ballad-like story. Says Wordsworth, but it's nothing like any ballads that anyone had seen before. That this is what the tale is. I see you're waiting for a tale. Okay. Here's the tale. I helped him, and he was grateful, and that made me feel bad. And that is, or that made me feel sad. Not even made me feel bad, but it made me feel sad. And that's what turns this into the kind of thing that Wordsworth is thinking poetry should should be doing, which is really talking about real human experience in 
very simple ways that is like in ballad form, that is the essence of real human experience, but where the essence of real human experience is not an oversimplification of real human experience. You know that you're not supposed to use the word, there, there are words that, that are, um, actually I can't think of one, I was going to say overemphasis, but it's not one. There are words where you're, where you're repeating, over-exaggeration, that's a, that's a thing you're never supposed to do, right? You know that? Um, yes, yeah, not, that's not. <laughs> but over, what, what's wrong with the word over exaggeration? Exaggeration is already over. Exactly. Exaggeration is all over exaggeration is like exaggerated exaggeration, and the um, so so oversimplification can feel to a lot of people as meaning something like over exaggeration, but it doesn't. Simplification can be good where oversimplification isn't. And it's hard to thread that needle, but I think Wordsworth is threading that needle. That, that the ballads, the lyrical ballads, simplify without ever oversimplifying. And I think that's what's going on in something like Simon Lee. Um, let's take a look at, well, I really love Two April Mornings. Just, let's just look at it quickly, which is, um, I'm sorry, let's, we could do two April mornings, but let's look at um, Lines Written in Early Spring, which is a similar poem. Um, we can also figure out page two April mornings. Um, someone want to read Lines Written in Early Spring? It's on page 30. Go ahead. I heard a thousand blended notes while in a grove I sat, I sat reclined. In that sweet mood with pleasant thoughts brings sad thoughts to the mind. Yeah, not with, when pleasant thoughts. Sorry, in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts brings sad thoughts to the mind. So what do you think of that? It's already an interesting irony like the other poem. Yeah. Yeah, that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind. What's, what is um, complex about that? If pleasant thoughts are bringing sad thoughts to the mind, then why is it a sweet mood? Okay. Um, so the mood is sweet, and so pleasant thoughts... So if you think about it, the ordering is something like this. I have pleasant thoughts, which bring sad thoughts to the mind which is sweet. Yeah. So we go from pleasant to sad to sweet. It's not that we go from pleasant to sad, it's that we go from pleasant to sad to sweet. And that idea that all those things can go together, that one can lead to the next, can lead to the third, that we can all recognize that mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind, and we can all find that mood sweet, that's, that's really, really dense and really, really interesting. That is, he's describing something that in a way is immediately recognizable, and yet in another way has never been described like this before. Okay, keep reading. It, to yeah. her fair works did nature link the human soul that ran through that through me ran, and much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. So he's looking at nature and thinking about how people treat each other. And so somehow nature is both a reminder 
and, and be, because it's an alt, it's a reminder because it's an alternative to how humans treat each other. So there's nature and there's human behavior, and that's a kind of standard contrast in Wordsworth. That they're the way people treat each other, and then there's the wonderful natural world. That's it's a misleading contrast in Wordsworth. I think you can feel it's misleading right here because he sees nature and thinks of humans, but it's the baseline contrast in Wordsworth. Okay, go on from there. Through humorous tufts in that sweet bower, the periwinkle trilled its wreaths, and tis my fate that every flower enjoys the air it breathes. So flowers love the world. The birds around me hopped and played, their thoughts I cannot measure. By the least motion which they made, it seemed, it seemed a thrill of pleasure. So just love nature. The budding twigs spread out their fan to catch the breezy air, and I must think, do all I can, that there was pleasure there. If, yeah, go on. If I these thoughts may not prevent, if such be of my creed the plan, have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? So, um, if this is what I really believe, if nature is really this wonderful, wonderful place, wonderful experience, wonderful... Um, contrivance shouldn't I be sad shouldn't I be lamenting at the way humans treat each other and obviously the answer is yes humans treat each other badly but it's also the case that nature somehow reminds him of that and in a way what I think I want to say is that what's important about this poem is that Nature reminds him of something other than nature. That is, there is there's a kind of you can imagine. You've probably heard a version of nature poetry, which is forget humans go go into nature. Nature is what really matters. Um, go live in the woods like Thoreau. That's where. It's in the woods, that's where true freedom is, and you can leave humanity behind. And that idea of Wordsworth as nature poet, which is maybe um, the most standard idea that there is of Wordsworth, that Wordsworth is a poet of nature, he's a nature poet, he celebrates nature, um, all of which is true. And in fact, a lot of... Without Wordsworth, there would have been no Thoreau, and without Thoreau, there would have been no modern ecology. And the idea of preserving nature because nature is in itself something wonderful, and the whole, eco the whole movement of ecology, and in fact a whole lot of criticism now of romantic poetry, that is, writing on romantic poetry, is about the ecological imagination. It's about ecology. But the crucial thing about Wordsworth is Nature is never something where he just says, oh, this is great, now I'm happy because I'm in nature, and as long as you live a life of nature, you'll be happy. That is a standard and wrong understanding of Wordsworth, that Wordsworth felt at home in nature or could feel that nature was the place where humans should feel at home. That's as wrong as thinking that Blake thought innocence was where humans were most at home. In that the songs of innocence showed where we should really be, and then unfortunately we can't stay there. It's 
nature for Wordsworth is part of a psychologically extraordinarily deep psychological self-reflection and not an escape from psychological self-reflection. Let's take a look at one more um, poem. This is actually, this is the Two April Mornings, which is on page 126 of, um, of uh, the Norton Wordsworth. And um, I just draw your attention to it because it is, th this wasn't published till much later, but it's written at the same time. Um, the footnote tells you 1798, winter of 1798-1799. So it's not actually composed in April, but um, I think it's an amazing poem. We walked along while bright and red uprose the morning sun, and Matthew stopped. He looked and said, the will of God be done. So Matthew is a figure who appears in several Wordsworth poems as a kind of old wise man who has had the experience that the young speaker has not yet had. So we walked along while bright and red uprose the morning sun. And Matthew stopped. He looked and said, the will of God be done. A village schoolmaster was he, with hair of glittering gray, as blithe a man as you could see on a spring holiday. And on that morning, through the grass and by the steaming rills, we traveled merrily to pass a day among the hills. Our work, said I, was well begun. Then from my, excuse me, then from thy breast, what thought beneath so beautiful a sun, so sad a sigh has brought. So why, as Matthew said, the will of God be done as they were walking on this, um, on this spring morning, and it's all really beautiful, and they're passing a day among the hills, and everything is going well, but so why did you sigh, he asked Matthew. A second time did Matthew stop, and fixing still his eye upon the eastern mountaintop to me, he made reply, Yon cloud... That with the, excuse me, on cloud with that long purple cleft brings fresh into my mind a day like this, which I have left full thirty years behind. So one thought has brought another thought to his mind. He sees a cloud and it reminds him of something that happened thirty years ago. And on that slope of springing corn, the selfsame crimson hue fell from the sky that April morn the same which now I view. With rod and line, my silent sport, I plied by Derwent's wave. So he's fishing in the river Derwent. With rod and line, my silent sport, I plied by Derwent's wave, and coming to the church, stopped short beside my daughter's grave. So it's a beautiful <coughs> April morning, and he's reminded of another beautiful April morning. And what happened on that other beautiful April morning, 30 years earlier, is that he was walking back from fishing and he came upon his daughter's grave, which he'd forgotten for a moment, or forgotten for a while. Nine summers had she scarcely seen the pride of all the vale, and then she sang she would have been a very nightingale 
six feet in earth my Emma lay, and yet I loved her more, for so it seemed, until that day I e'er had loved before. So he's remembering this act of intense mourning from 30 years earlier. And turning from her grave, I met beside the churchyard you, a blooming girl whose hair was wet with points of morning dew, a basket on her head she bare, her brow was smooth and white. To see a child so very fair it was a pure delight. No fountain from its rocky cave, ere tripped with foot so free, she seemed as happy as a wave that dances on the sea. There came from me a sigh of pain, which I could ill confine. I looked at her and looked again, and did not wish her mine. So that's the story that Matthew tells. An amazing story, if you think about it. That is, that he was fishing, he'd forgotten that his daughter was dead for a moment, he wasn't thinking about her, and then he comes upon her grave, and he's struck with the pangs of love, and then he sees another little girl who's alive, and he sighs with pain then, so he's remembering now, sighing with pain then, and he didn't wish that girl his. Why is a really hard question. There are probably several different answers, maybe not all consistent with each other, and yet all true. And then the amazing last stanza of this poem. Matthew is in his grave, yet now methinks I see him stand as at that moment with his bow of wilding in his hand. So it's more like there are four April mornings in this poem, not two. That is that Here's a story about how I was walking with Matthew, who is now dead, who, when I was walking with him, remembered a moment 30 years earlier when he was reminded of the fact that his daughter was now dead and that there was another little girl who was alive whom he had a complex relationship to. And just the way we're kind of being sent from one moment to another moment to another moment to another moment, that all of this is somehow arising as a really complicated, powerful moment of mourning on the part of the speaker of this poem, Missing Matthew missing this story that Matthew told him, feeling in some sense that the living, that living memory is itself something that gets remembered. In a way, what this poem's about is remembering, is remembering remembering. Remembering Matthew remembering Matthew remembering. And that, I, that, shuttle from the present, from the immediate, from what's right before you, through this wilderness of loss, which is a name for passing time, or this wilderness of time passing, 
which is a name for loss, that Wordsworth just does this in these super simple poems, or in this super simple form, with an incredible economy of words, and just has all this overlay and multiplicity of things that are gone, and that are both vivid and gone at the same time. He's just amazing at it in these short poems, yeah. And there's something so vivid that it managed to, to be there in each of the mornings, which was that, that crimson and sun and the, the way the, the nature looked. Yeah. Was almost permanent. Yeah, yeah. It transcended each of the, the memories, each of the mornings. Yeah. All right, um, more lyrical ballads and read the preface for Monday. And um, then we'll go on to the play. I know it's only Wednesday, but have a good weekend. <laughs>